For the past group of weeks, we have been going through the book of Romans, and today we're going to do so uh, just the same. We're in Romans chapter 3 today, and um, in Romans chapter 3, there's, we're going to look at this chapter in two parts, so today will be the first part of us looking at Romans 3. But what you're going to see in this portion of Scripture is a series of excuses, the type of things that we tend to toss out and, and kind of throw out there. And um, I'm going to, because the Scripture we're looking at today is a little bit longer, I'm going to read it for us in steps as we walk through it. But uh, let's see, Are, do we have our slides for this? Okay. So there we go. Okay. Um, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 1, going down to verse 20, and we're, we're going to be talking about excuses here. Now, let me say this just to kind of set this up. In life, there are a variety of things that we know that we should do, but sometimes what we should do conflicts with what we would prefer to do. Wouldn't you say that's true? Like, for instance, I know that I, I should eat steamed vegetables, right? Steamed vegetables are good. Nolan's shaking his head. No, no, I should eat steamed vegetables, but I will confess to you that I really enjoy batter-dipped, deep-fried vegetables, okay? But I know I should eat steamed vegetables. I know I should go to bed at night at 10.30 when the rest of my family is going to bed but I prefer to fall asleep on my recliner than wake myself up with a loud surprise snore and then go to bed while waking everyone else up while I lumber to bed. So what I should do and what I prefer to do are often very different things. And in life, that's a pattern that we see quite regularly. That's not something that just now and then shows up. And, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, we're not just talking about like entertaining small things, we're talking about things that actually have real consequence in our day-to-day -day life where we're finding ourselves compromising with what we know to be right because we're choosing what we would prefer to do or what we would prefer to excuse ourselves to do in the first place. And um, we can come up with creative justifications to do that, can't we? I mean, I, I'm great at coming up with creative ways to justify with what, whatever I want to do until the Holy Spirit intervenes and speaks to my conscience and says, this isn't the will of God for you. And this, the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today talks about that kind of mindset. And by the way, this isn't something that's new. This isn't something that's new to us. This is something that mankind has excelled at from our earliest days, and it always gets us in trouble. And it always impacts the nature of our fellowship with God. So even before I begin reading the Scripture, which I'm going to start reading in just a moment, I just want us to ask us, ourselves the question, what are you currently excusing in your life right now that actually should be rooted out instead of excused? Or maybe I could even ask it this way, what are your favorite excuses for doing whatever you want? What are your favorite excuses for doing whatever you want? So again, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, where we're looking today, you have the Apostle Paul confronting this mindset, and you have him confronting um, the way this tends to work in our lives, and he also illustrates how absurd it is. And he makes, a, he makes it abundantly clear to us 
that in spite of our attempts to excuse our unrighteousness, that God remains perfectly righteous. Well, what else does this Scripture reveal? Let me show us a few things here. First, let's look at the, just the first few verses. But they illustrate for us that God is faithful in spite of our failures. Let me read just the first four verses of Romans 3 to set this up, and then we'll work our way through the remaining verses in uh, a few minutes. But in Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 1, this is what we read. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? So you can see him continuing the thoughts that he was discussing in the previous chapter. But he says, Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be, uh, excuse me, let, let God be true, through, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let's pause there for just a moment. So in the previous two chapters of the book of Romans that we've already looked at together, you have Paul illustrating the sinful nature of the human heart. He did that by pointing out that the Gentile nations have excelled at rejecting and suppressing the knowledge of God. And he also pointed out that the Jewish people have done the very same thing, even though they had been blessed with additional forms of revelation. And when Paul was writing these things down here in Romans chapter 3, as the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to communicate these things, he anticipated the kind of questions that might arise from this kind of teaching on this subject, particularly among some of his Jewish brothers and sisters who would read these passages. He knew that they might ask questions like this, and he even brought one up. He says, you know, that they might ask the question, then what advantage has the Jew? So he throws it out there as a hypothetical question saying, they might bring, you know, thinking people might bring this up. And so he answered this hypothetical question with a clear example. And he pointed out that the Jewish people had been entrusted with divine revelation that God had clearly and specifically communicated to them through the prophets that he had raised up in their midst. So he's answering this question, what advantages have the Jews had? And he's, he's saying, you know, you, you've, you've had prophets raised up in your midst, and you've had God directly and clearly communicate His specific will through them to you. And then many of these prophecies were written down and passed down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation in the Word of God. And among the things taught in the Word of God, these things that were communicated to the Jewish people first, it was revealed to them that the day was coming soon when, when the Savior, Jesus Christ, would be sent to rescue and redeem them. And when you look through the prophetic portions of the Old Testament, and I would highly, highly encourage you to do this, look for Jesus all throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament. But they were told prophetic details about where and when and how all of this was going to happen, but many rejected this truth, and many still do. Yet God was faithful to them. God remained faithful. But still, sadly, history showed that group of people to be unfaithful to God. But does their lack of faithfulness toward God, or their lack of faith, I guess we could say, does it nullify 
God's faithfulness to them. Well, what Paul's illustrating here in this portion of Scripture is that it, God's faithfulness is not, is not um, nullified in the least. God still has a plan for the Jewish people. And when you read through the, the prophetic portions of Scripture, particularly when you look throughout the book of, of Revelation, portions that have yet to be fulfilled, we can see a great harvest of faith in Jesus Christ that one day is going to be reaped among the Jewish people. They will finally receive and recognize their long-promised Messiah. And in the meantime, since the Jewish people have rejected Jesus during this era, the Lord is focusing on the Gentile nations seeking to rescue and redeem them. This is what Scripture illustrates for us. This is what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate to the people who are reading this portion of Scripture. This is something that's being communicated to us now as we look at this portion of Scripture. And basically, when you look at the hand of God as He does His work in and through the lives of people all throughout the ages, all throughout history, it seems that God has a knack for turning the unfaithfulness of man and the sinfulness of man. He turns it around so that good can come from it. Don't we see the Lord doing that time and time again? We probably notice the Lord do that in our own lives, but certainly when you look from a historical perspective, we can see God taking the unfaithfulness of man, the sinfulness of man, and flipping it around so that what was originally intended by the, the perpetrators of those deeds gets flipped around and the Lord ultimately ends up using it for His glory and for His good. There are countless examples, and for our good, there are countless examples in Scripture of Him doing this. And if we're honest, we could admit that when we look at the Lord doing these things in the Scripture, it makes Him look pretty good, doesn't it? It makes God look pretty good. He has a knack for taking our messes and cleaning them up and showing Himself to be righteous and showing Himself to be faithful and showing Himself to be true. He's done it over and over and over again all throughout human history. So that being the case, knowing that that's God's pattern, and knowing that this is how God has revealed Himself to us in multiple ways, and He's shown us that He likes to act in this way, it appears that some people, and you have the Apostle Paul addressing this in this portion of Scripture, but it, it, it appears that some people were possibly willing to say, well, we might as well go on sinning then, since our sinning makes God look really good. We should just go on sinning. You know, it gives him even more opportunity. We're effectively doing God a favor, are we not? Right? We're giving him more and more opportunities to show his power and to show his righteousness and to show his faithfulness by giving him more messes to clean up and more issues to resolve. And Paul anticipated that people might say that, that they might say, all right, wait a second. You know, if our, if our messes make God look good when he cleans them up, shouldn't we do him that favor and create more messes, and, and just kind of sin to our, you know, just to whatever degree we want to, and then let God clean up the mess, and then He could show Himself to be righteous over and over and over again. Look at how Paul addresses that here in this passage. Look at verse 5. He says, but if our unrighteousness, so he's showing the hypothetical question being, um, you know, hypothetically asked, because he could anticipate this, but he says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, he says there in parentheses. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just, Paul says there. Let's pause there for just a just an extra moment. So why not do evil that good may come of it? That's the question he's posing there, right? As he presents this hypothetical to the church at Rome. Why not do evil that good may come from it? I have found evil very easy to do over the course of my life. When I was a child, no one had to teach me to do what was wrong. When I was growing up, no one had to teach me to do what was wrong. I certainly had people in my life that were influencing me in that direction, but even if I didn't have their influence, I still would have gone in that direction eventually myself. No one ever had to teach me to do what was wrong or rebellious. Instinctively, I seemed to know how to do that. So why not do evil that good may come from it? Is that a logical question? Or is that the kind of question that fails to grasp the kind of price that God paid to rescue and redeem us? Isn't that the kind of question that fails to grasp the price that God paid to rescue and redeem us, the painful price He paid? Isn't that the kind of question that flows from a heart that's still nurturing or idolizing the presence and the false promises of sin? And if you nurture and you idolize the false promises of sin, you will look for any excuse to practice sin that you can find. And basically what this shows, even as we try try to excuse the things that don't belong in our lives, it again shows that God is completely just when He judges the world. He's completely just when He judges the world. He's completely just when He inflicts His wrath on mankind. The Father was also completely just when you consider this, He was completely just when He he made His sinless Son, Jesus Christ, the recipient of His wrath in our place so that we could escape eternal condemnation through faith in Christ Jesus. We deserve the wrath of God. Today, you know, even as we're gathered here, you can see that we're prepared to take communion together in a few moments. What are we doing when we partake of communion? We're saying, thank you, Lord, for taking the condemnation upon Yourself that I deserved. I deserved every whip that lashed your back. I deserved every nail that pierced your wrists and your ankles. I deserved the crown of thorns that that scarred your brow. I deserved every insult that you took for me. I deserved death that you suffered in my place. I deserved that, and yet you came to this earth and took it all for me so that the righteous wrath of God could be satisfied. There were two options. Either we took that punishment or God came to this earth and took it for us. He satisfied His just demands. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, one with the Father, to this earth to take our condemnation upon Himself. And if we're people who are no longer under the condemnation of sin... Why would we elect to live like we're still condemned by embracing the chains that Christ freed us from? Why go back to the very things that Christ freed us from? Now, ironically, there is a part of us that still wants to run from God instead of running to God. Even though the Lord delights to show us that He is faithful in spite of our failures, and even though He delights to show us that that He desires to embrace us, There's this part of us that that desires to flee from Him instead of running toward Him. 
But even though we try and live independently of Him, we still need Him. Even though we try and run from Him, we still need Him. Even though we try and live like He's not going to be part of the next season of our lives. And in fact, just this week, I heard of somebody who's doing a lot of running. Someone I know very well who's kind of flipped his life completely upside down. And instead of running toward the Lord, he decided he's going to spend the next season of his life running away from the Lord. Now, you and I know how well that's going to work out for him. It's not going to work out well for him at all. And many of us know it's not going to work out well for him at all because we've done that very same thing. And when you look at verses 9 through 18, it shows us the kind of condition that the human heart is in. It shows us that God is needed in spite of our desire for independence from Him. Look at how we're, we're shown here that we as human beings love to run from God. Look at verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. By the way, have you ever met people in this world that think that verse doesn't apply to them? There's a few. But it says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now let's pause there, but that does not paint a very pretty picture. But that is the picture of a life that runs from God, a life that tries to live independently of God, even though we desperately need Him. Do you remember when you were a kid and your family would take you shopping? Wasn't that one of the best things in the world? Some of my favorite uh, memories from when I was a young child involved actually going um, uh, to the store with my grandmother and my aunt. Whenever they would babysit me and my sisters, they would take us to the store, and they got to a spot where, well, my grandmother never drove. My aunt did drive, but really we would just take the bus into downtown Wilkes-Barre, and our favorite place to go was the downtown Wilkes-Barre Boscovs. They have a really cool Boscovs there, and it's got a restaurant in the basement. It's got the best toy department. I still get nostalgic if I find myself in that store, because even though my grandmother and aunt are with the Lord, I can still hear things that they said to me when I was in that store with them. I can still remember things that they bought for me when I was in that store. And I get disappointed when the store makes any drastic change, because I want it to be, I want it to encapsulize my childhood at least to some degree. But what's the process like when you're taking children shopping? Well, when they're really little, they're in a cart of some kind because they're hard to carry when you need to, you know, bring other stuff. Do you ever notice, by the way, like how your upper body strength really grows when you have a child? Like I see some of you moms, um, you know, before you had kids, like you were weakling, some of you. You know, you were just so weak. You know, you come in and you're just carrying your coffee. You're almost going to spill it, right? And now you have children and you're just like, you've got like a child in a car seat on this arm and a child in a car seat on this arm and you come in and I fear you because I can see how strong the circumstances of life have made you. Um, 
you weren't weak. Um, but the, the, the point being, right, when a child's real little, you have them in something. Maybe, you know, if you're in a, a grocery store, you just have them sitting in that little built-in seat. And then over time, they get sick of that. They don't want to do that. They want to move back where you have the food, right? And it's like, please, pile all the food on top of me. Is this not true? I, maybe that's changed. That used to be the case. Kids like to be buried in that with just their head peeking out, right? And uh, then after a while, uh, they want to walk along with you, and they want to be the person putting stuff in the cart. So you let them do that, and you hold them there. And then, and then eventually what happens is you let them do a little exploring a little bit further down the aisle, but you want them to still be in eyesight. You want, you want to be able to see them. And then they get a little bit older, and you're like, all right, here, listen. Just meet me back at the produce section in five minutes. If you can meet me back at the produce section in five minutes, you're fine. And then they do that, and they pass that test, and over time, what happens? They gain more and more independence until they're at the season of life that, that my wife and I are at, where either they're out of the house, some of them, right? Or you're just kind of like, all right, we will drop you off at the mall where you may shop or loiter with your friends until we get called by mall security, and we will then pick you up at the food court, right? And isn't that how the independent, because I can remember as a teenager when I finally got to that stage where, um, you know, I can remember my dad dropping me off at the mall and he's like, I will be back here in two and a half hours. And for two and a half hours, I knew that I had just complete liberty and complete freedom. And I did not want him to come back early. I did not want him to be back right away. I wanted him to stay away. And I wanted to have the complete freedom to walk the mall with my friends and do whatever I was doing. But there were times... I did not want complete independence. Two times during the year, at the end of August, when I wanted new sneakers for going back to school, I actually wanted my dad to be with me while we were in the mall. So I recognized that I needed him to pay for those sneakers. Same exact story halfway through the school year when I knew it was time for another set of sneakers. So two times a year, I wanted my dad with me because deep down I was like, eh, I I guess I still need you, but I also like living independently from you. Well, when you look at the scripture that we just read, it shows us that the, des the desire for independence is a natural part of our life. By the way, it's a natural part of maturity, the desire for independence. That's fine. But what happens is if it drifts into the unhealthy territory of isolation or avoidance, that's when it's not good. And you have the Apostle Paul in this portion of Scripture illustrating that struggle on a spiritual level in these verses. Meaning, we can come to a place where we seek independence from God that's really a form of avoidance or isolation, even though we desperately need Him in our day-to-day -day lives. So you have Paul, he gives us a synopsis of Scripture in that rundown that he, that he speaks about there. He's quoting various portions of the Psalms and other portions of Scripture, but he gives us a synopsis here. And it's a synopsis that's meant to describe man's avoidance of God. And he talks about the fact that apart from God, no one is righteous. No one naturally understands the heart and the mind of God. No one is naturally seeking a close relationship with Him. Instead, we run from Him. We turn aside from Him in our thinking and in our speaking and in our living. And as we, as, we, as we find ourselves embracing unrighteousness, we eventually find ourselves stuck in a pit of ruin and misery. 
and we trade the peace that we could have had through faith in Jesus Christ for a humanistic lifestyle that lives without fear of God's intervention. That's what's described in those verses. We trade peace for humanism. We push God away, and we act like we don't need His intervention. And every single one of us is in that same boat. That's the other thing he's talking about here, right? We can't look. So if you're from a Gentile group, you can't say, oh, the Jewish people are in that boat. And the Jewish people can't look at us and say, oh, it's the Gentile people that are in that boat. That's not the point at all. The point that this Scripture is saying is every single human being is in the same exact boat. We do the same exact things. Every single one of us in this room, every single person that's driving by this building right now, every single person you have ever met, Every one of us has tried to do life without God. Every single one of us, at some point in our life, we've embraced the avoidance of God. And we've embraced trying to live our lives independent of His counsel, independent of His direction, and independent of His love. But thankfully, many of us could also testify to the fact that that we did not find contentment during those seasons of life. We were not content to continue going in that direction. Many of us could joyfully confirm that the Lord did not give up on us even after we gave up on Him. He drew us back to Himself, and He helped us to see just how much we really needed Him. This is evidence of His grace in our lives. And for this, we can be very very thankful. Now there's one other thing that this portion of Scripture brings up that I want to point out to us today, and it's in verses 19 to 20, and it speaks about this additional aspect of what people try to do when we're trying to live apart from God, and that's this. We try and justify ourselves even though God is the only one who can justify us. We try and justify ourselves, even though God is the justifier. Look at verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3. Those verses say this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, I don't know how much of the Bible you've taken the time to read, uh, but I hope that over the course of your life you'll take time to read the entire thing, maybe even multiple times. And if you read the Bible cover to cover, you'll notice something. The Old Testament law, which was given in the first five books of the Bible, it includes many moral and legal and ceremonial laws. And in the midst of all of that, we also find things like the Ten Commandments. So you find the Ten Commandments referenced in the Old Testament law. It's in those portions of Scripture. It's reiterated even. And there's other regulations, and there's other precepts. And there isn't a single thing wrong with any law in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. There's not a single thing wrong with any one of those laws, and God's people were required to keep them in their entirety. Now, again, I don't know if you've ever read through them, but one of the things you'll probably be struck with if you do read through them is that that would be a very difficult task because there's civic laws that are mentioned there as far as government goes, 
And there's ceremonial laws that were to govern acts of, of worship and things of that nature. And um, there's also moral laws in that portion of Scripture that are to govern our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with one another. And if you looked at those and said, okay, you have to keep all of these, but here's the caveat. If you break even one of them, you are guilty of breaking them all. Does that sound like a heavy task? You break even one of them, you're guilty of breaking all of them. And that's what's pointed out to us when we look at the Scriptures, right? We're not expected, you know, the, the, God's people were not expected to just keep some of the law. They were, they were expected to keep the whole thing. And there's not a single thing wrong with any one of those laws. But unfortunately, our sin natures get in the way of us keeping the law of God perfectly. Not a single one of us. I can't, you can't, none of us could keep the law of God perfectly. We would mess up something. Even if, it, even if we didn't mess it up volitionally, like in the sense of like, um, you know, with, with an actual visible, observable act, we still mess things up in our head and in our hearts, and then eventually in our hands as well. And because mankind failed to keep the law of God, God was fully correct in declaring mankind unrighteous and declaring us condemned. He was, fully, he was fully fine, fully accurate, fully right in making those declarations. We are all accountable to Him, and without exception, we all failed. Now, if the story ended there, that would be a very sad story. And it very well could have ended there if the Lord hadn't intervened. But for that reason, because we needed His intervention, the Father sent the Son. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And what Jesus did when He came into this world is He kept the law for us. He kept it for me, and He kept it for you because we couldn't keep it. The law made us aware of our sinfulness. The law made us aware of our need to be saved. But we weren't able to keep it. So Jesus came to this earth, and He kept it for us. He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. He lived the sinless life we were not capable of living. Look at what it tells us in Matthew chapter 3.15. It says, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now that's a portion of scripture from the baptism of Christ. And Jesus was explaining to John the Baptist that his mission was to fulfill all righteousness, to keep the law perfectly. Scripture also goes on to say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, you know that, what, that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So Jesus, Jesus Christ came to this earth to keep the law perfectly for us, which also means that you and I will not be justified or declared righteous. That's what that term means. It means to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. We will not be justified or declared righteous in the eyes of God through keeping the law because that's not something we are capable of doing. I am not capable of keeping the law of God perfectly. And you are not capable of keeping the law of God perfectly. Therefore, we would never be declared righteous in the eyes of God because to be able to be declared righteous according to the letter of the law, you would have to keep it perfectly, and none of us is capable to do that. So Jesus had to do that for us. But now, through faith in Jesus, the work that He accomplished on our behalf 
is transmitted to our account as if we did it. He did it for us, and then He gives us His righteousness as a gift. So, the, so you have God using the law to make us conscious of our sin and to make us conscious of our need to be saved from it. We could never justify ourselves through our works or through our merits, but we can receive justification as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ who did the work for us and fulfilled and kept the law of God. Now let me say this as we wrap this up and prepare our hearts to partake of communion together. While we wait for Christ's return, and by the way, He's coming back. I hope you believe that, and I hope that's a source of encouragement for you. Because Scripture tells us that's next. He's coming back. And, and He even told us when we partake of communion that we do this until He returns, right? The Scripture reveals to us we do this until He returns. Looking back at what He's done, but also looking forward at what He's still going to do. So while we wait for Christ's return, and while we wait for our eventual glorification, meaning He's going to glorify us in His presence, we will someday be completely sinless in our brand new heavenly bodies. While we wait for that to happen, let's stop making unhealthy excuses. Let's stop doing that. Let's stop giving ourselves permission to do whatever we want, regardless of what God's will is for our lives. Rather, like this Scripture outlines for us, let's praise our God who is faithful in spite of our failures. Let's seek the intervention of God, whom we need, particularly when we're tempted to avoid Him. Let's remember that justification is a work of God that only He can accomplish. And that we can't accomplish our justification through trying to earn His approval through the work of our hands. But what we can do is trust in the Son of God who has secured our access to eternal life. What's your favorite excuse for doing whatever you want? Are we willing to lay that down before the Lord today and say, you know what, Lord, I have spent a lot of time relying on this excuse. And I've used this to justify whatever I want. Oh, my hard past gives me permission to do whatever I want because I need to find comfort through this or through that. Really? Any of us experience as many trials as Christ experienced while He was on the face of this earth? Anyone ever had their body shredded and then been nailed to a cross while crowds spit upon you and insulted you? I haven't. Now, I'm not trying to minimize hard things I've experienced in my life. I'm not trying to minimize hard things you've experienced in your life or even hard things you're going through right now. The Lord knows that those things are real, and Scripture even tells us He's sympathetic to it. But we shouldn't use our trials as an excuse to avoid Him. Our trials should be the type of things that teach us He can be faithfully relied upon, even in the midst of our hardest seasons. So if you're going through something right now, and if you've been relying on your favorite excuse to do whatever you want, I would encourage you today as an act of worship to give that over to the Lord. If you've been running from God or seeking to avoid Him, I'd encourage you to welcome Him into your life once again. Because a scripture like this, even though it talks in a very confrontational way, and it's doing that because it's trying to be lovingly honest. It's looking at, at, at us, people who have the proclivity to go in all sorts of unhealthy directions, 
and it reminds us God is faithful even when we're faithless. He remains faithful. And He didn't stop loving you because you've had a low season. And He never wants you or I to forget all that He paid for you and I to have the kind of relationship that we have with Him. And so in just a moment, we're going to partake of a reminder of the body and blood of Christ. Before we do so, we're going to spend a few moments confessing before the Lord silently. Whatever is on your heart to confess to Him, I'd encourage you to confess. And then I'll invite our ushers to come up and lead us in the partaking of communion together. Let's pray silently and let's confess before the Lord. Lord, we thank You for Your love, and we thank You for Your presence with us today. We thank You for the things that we're able to read in a portion of Scripture like we just read from Romans 3. And in a strange way, Lord, it's comforting to see how confrontational You choose to be in a portion of Scripture like this because it's not Your will and it's not Your desire for us to just wander from you, for us to just spend our lives distant from you, worshiping unhealthy things, worshiping and trying to find comfort from things that are actually trying to destroy us. Lord, we all have the proclivity to do that. Instead of growing in our walk with you, sometimes we try and take independence and turn it into avoidance and, and turn it into isolation. And Lord, obviously that's not your desire for us. You're our loving Father. And you displayed your love so clearly. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world, who kept the law for us, and then suffered death and the penalty for our sin for us, and then rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And now through faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the gift of his righteousness. We become justified before you. You declare us righteous, not with a righteousness that we had, but a righteousness that you gave us through your Son. And in this process, Lord, you're now sanctifying us. You're making us holy. You're producing holiness in our lives. And then you reveal to us that there's another step for us in the future when you're going to glorify us. You'll give us a brand new sinless body. We'll live forever in your presence, never again tempted to sin, never again tempted to run from you, never again tempted to rebel, enjoying the, the pleasures and the, the joys of eternity in your presence for all time, grateful that you're the one who brought us there. So Lord, we're grateful for all these things, and we're grateful for these reminders from your word today. And Lord, as we partake of communion together now, we pray that you'd speak to our minds and speak to our hearts. And help us to understand more about the sacrifice that your son Jesus Christ made on our behalf. We thank you for this reminder now that you've blessed us with. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.